Section 7 of Solario the Tailor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colada. Solario the Tailor by William Bowen. Section 7 The Rag Picker and the Princess. Part 2. The rag picker frightens the men away with her bag. The rag picker had reached the next corner and was about to turn into the street at her right when a dozen men came hurrying toward her in a group and she stopped and faced them. They were burly men and they were plainly angry. They carried cudgels and one of them carried a rope. They meant to do her harm without a doubt. They advanced on her, muttering dangerously together, and she stood stock-still, waiting. One of the men gave a shout, and they rushed upon her in a body, but quick as a wink, the old woman wixed her back from her shoulder to the ground and began to open it, and at this the men fell back against each other as if afraid, and as the old woman made again as if to open the back, the men hesitated turned about and actually took to their heels and fled. The rag-picker slung her back upon her back again, turned the corner, and disappeared. What could be in that bag, I wondered, to make those burly men afraid? I hurried to the corner and saw the old woman plodding away toward the end of the street. She did not look around, and I followed her cautiously. She passed beyond the village houses and began to climb a path which wound up the hillside among the rocks. Keeping carefully out of sight behind her, I saw her stop at last beside a hut which leaned against the side of the hill and go in at its door. I stole up quietly. There were no windows in the hut, but I thought I might be able to see inside through the roof, which was only a thatch of straw. I could easily reach it from the side of the hill. In a moment, I was lying on the roof and digging away the straw with my fingers. I worked slowly and noiselessly, and after a time made a hole through which I could look down into the hut. It was dark below, but I could see the old woman stooping down over an opening in the floor, from which she was just raising a trapdoor. She stepped down into the opening and closed the door over her head. I lost no time in making a hole in the thatch big enough to admit my body, and when I had done so, I dropped to the floor and stood beside the trapdoor. I raised it cautiously and peered down. All was dark below, but I could make out a flight of stone steps. I went down without a sound. He follows the rag-picker down into the dark. At the bottom, I got down on my hands and knees and crawled along, touching the side of a wall at my right. The wall ended abruptly, and feeling the ground before me, I found that I was on the edge of open space, and I could hear the rushing of water far below. My hand touched the top of a ladder, and I went down it carefully. But after a moment, my foot dangled in space, and I nearly fell off. 
the ladder stopped short and i clung on desperately i then climbed to the top again and crawled along toward my left feeling the edge with my hand until i shortly touched the top of another ladder and down this ladder fastened securely against the wall i went more cautiously than before the ladder was long but i finally found myself on solid ground following the wall to the left i passed around a corner and as i did so i saw a light it was a square patch of light like the light of a small window afar off in the darkness i went down on my hands and knees again and crawled toward it the ground was unbroken here and i could now scarcely hear the sound of water i stopped at last directly beneath the light and touched a wall i felt with my left hand what seemed to be a closed door and i got up slowly on my feet i was looking into a lighted room through a small square window without glass and crossed with iron bars the lamp was burning brightly in the bracket on the wall of the room on the earthen floor near the centre the old rag-picker was kneeling before a brazier containing a brisk fire over which hung an iron pot her bag lay on the floor beside her flat and limp it was evidently empty she stirs a steaming mixture with her long hooked forefinger as i watched her she arose from her knees and went to a door at the rear and made sure that it was closed tight she then went to a great heap of rubbish which was piled in one corner and scratching with her poker amongst the rags bones and old iron there picked out carefully a handful of bones examining each one minutely she then took from a shelf a large bottle of some dark liquid and with this and the bones she returned to the fire she poured the liquid into the iron pot and dropped in the bones one by one and as she did so i observed a thing which i had not discerned before that what i had thought was a poker held in her hand was in fact a long black stiff forefinger hooked at the end there was no doubt about it it was the first finger of her right hand as stiff as an iron rod and about a foot and a half long she stuck it into the steaming pot and stirred the mixture with it muttering to herself words which i could not understand presently she stopped stirring and sniffing the contents of the pot nodded her head as if satisfied she picked up from the ground an iron ladle and a pewter bowl and ladling the streaming liquid from the pot into the bowl drank it down every drop she put down the ladle and the bowl and stood motionless as if waiting a change began to come over her her back straightened she grew taller the wrinkles left her face her skin became fairer her eyes larger her hair longer and there before my eyes stood a young and beautiful damsel tall and erect with dark eyes in a pale face and two thick braids of brown hair hanging to her waist she held up her right hand and looked at it the long black stiff finger with the hook was still there she screamed and burying her face on her left arm choked with sobs 
In a moment, she raised her head and put away her heinous right hand behind her, where she could not see it. Her left hand she placed over her eyes with a gesture of despair, and as she remained standing in that attitude, the hand over her eyes grew old and withered. She began to shrink and stoop, and she moaned to herself. It was plain that the effect of what she had drunk was beginning to wear off. She shuddered and gave a mournful cry, and in another instant she was the old bent rag figure again. I drew a long breath. I stood back for fear that I might be seen, and when I looked again, the old woman was standing with her back toward me, facing the closed door at the rear. I noticed now what I had not noticed before. That she cast no shadow in the lamplight on the floor. Skag, she cried, "Come hither." A shadow oozed into the room through the crack of the door, and moved upright across the floor toward the rag picker. It was the shadow of a bent old woman, stooping under a bulky bag and holding out what appeared to be a poker, hooked at the end. The shadow of the old rag picker herself. It stood still, not far from the door. It's no use, Gag," said the old woman to her shadow. "I haven't found the right bone, but I will find it yet. I'll find it yet. Bring in the princess's shadow." Her own shadow disappeared through the crack in the door and returned immediately, followed by another. I started and almost cried out. It was the shadow of a young girl, undoubtedly the princess. And it stood upright on the floor beside the altar. Ah," said the old woman, "now my shadows are all complete. This one is the best and most fearsome of all. Ah, how they fear the shadows! Lucky for me, lucky for me. They are not afraid of me, but they are afraid of the shadows. This day they would have killed me, but for my bag of shadows. We mustn't lose them, Skag. We mustn't lose them. She paced about, growing more and more excited, and went on talking as she walked. We're in danger, Skag. We're in danger. The one-armed sorcerer is working against us. He has brought the princess herself here to help him against me. What can he mean to do? He means to take away my shadows from me, Skag. It must be that, and he has brought the princess to help him. And what then? Death, Skag. Death. A quick death, for what will the people be afraid of then? We must stop it, Skag. We must stop the sorcerer, and there is only one way. The princess must be destroyed. Tomorrow morning, when the sun shines and the shadows can be seen, I will seek her out and destroy her, and the shadows shall go with me and protect me. Bring in the shadows, Skag. The shadows of the children. The old woman's shadow disappeared through the crack again, and immediately returned. And behind it came a shadow, and another, and another, many shadows, all of children, and they moved upright across the floor and stood before the rag picker. They were flat as paper and black as ink, and the lamplight did not shine through them. They kept on coming, and the room was soon full of them, hundreds, as it seemed. Hundreds of shadows of little children, some so small that they were just beginning to walk, and the shadow of the princess was the tallest of all. 
The rag picker pointed at the princess's shadow with her long black lot of a finger, and said, "Into the bag." She stooped to her bag and held it open at the floor, and the shadow of the princess moved to it, crouched, and went in. "In, all of you!" cried the old woman. All the shadows crowded around the mouth of the bag, and one after another stooped and went in. There was none left but the shadow of the old woman herself. She closed the bag, now bulging, and flinging it over her shoulder, she said to her own shadow, "Hither, scat, and lie down." Her shadow moved close to her, and spread itself out on the ground with its feet to hers, growing longer as it did so, so that it became no more than an ordinary shadow cast by the lamplight on the floor. The old woman went to the lamp and blew out the light, and the room was in darkness except for the glimmer of the dying fire. I flattened myself on the ground as the door opened, and the old woman came forth with her bag on her back. I could scarcely see her, and in an instant she disappeared in the darkness. He loses his way in the dark. I waited a moment or two and then crawled cautiously in the direction I thought she had taken, but there was nothing but the blackness of deep night all round me, and I could not be sure of my direction. I looked behind me, and I could not see any longer the window I had just left. I had come from the ladder easily enough, but it was plainly a different matter to get back. I crawled on uncertainly and stopped now and then. I had gone by this time further than I had come at first, but I found no wall. I must have lost my way. I went on and found myself going down a slope. I knew that this could not be right, and I changed my course a little. But I was still going down the slope, and I was afraid that I would be utterly lost if I turned back. The sound of rushing water came to my ears now. The slope grew steeper, and I crawled more cautiously. The sound of the water became more distinct. The ground was suddenly slimy, and before I knew it, I was slipping down a steep descent, unable to stop myself. I slid and slid faster and faster, clutching the slimy ground and rolling over and over. And as I was fainting with dizziness, I shot off into space and came down with a splash into a torrent of deep water. The stream hurled me away. I struggled against it, but it was too swift. It was impossible to swim. I could do no more than to keep my head above water, and let the current fling me along into the darkness. Tossed like a leaf, hurled against the walls of the stream, scratched by the edges of rocks, bruised, bleeding, and half drowned, I almost lost consciousness and scarcely knew anything more. Until I felt myself lying on the soft sand in shallow water, I looked up and saw above me a clear sky. The open sea was rolling toward me on the beach, and the moon was glittering on the waves. I tottered to my feet. I was so weak and sore that I could hardly stand. When I was able to move, I walked forward toward the ocean. The stream which had brought me sprayed out and lost itself in the sand. At my feet, the breakers came rushing up, and a strip of beach lay at my right hand and my left, enclosed at the back and sides by a high cliff. 
There was no way out except by climbing the cliffs. I shouted, hoping that the seal might be out there in the water, but there was no response. I made up my mind that I would have to climb the cliff. It was a cruel task, for the cliff was steep and there was scarcely any foothold but an occasional rock and bush. But I never once thought of discouragement, and I stuck to it with all my might. My bare feet and my hands were torn by the rocks, but I kept on, up and up, and in time I stood at the top. I hastened away along the edge of the cliff, and came after a long walk to a place where the cliff turned back shoreward, and there I looked down and saw the roofs of the village straggling up its hillside behind the cove. He hears the voice of the seal again. I lay down and put my head out over the edge of the cliff, and at that moment they came to me from the still water of the cove, a faint, sad voice, singing. O oh, wonderful pancake batter, O oh, table and fork and plate, I wonder whatever's the matter that he keeps me waiting so late. He said he was willing to serve us, regardless of danger or peril. But I'm getting so dreadfully nervous. I really am scarcely myself. Oh, why does he loiter and linger? Why I wait so sorry and sick? Let him sever the rack picker's finger and do it almightily quick. For then I shall sit at a table, my napkin over my knees, and tipple as long as I'm able, and gobble as long as I please with plenty of good hot curry and plenty of custard pie if he only would hurry hurry oh why does he linger why the voice stopped and i rose to my feet and made off across the moonlit fields there used to be a baker at the castle said the queen shortly after i was buried who made up a great many very pretty songs the king used to say that he sang better than he baked. For my part, I was very sorry to lose him. His niece was going to be married in one of our villages. I forget which. No, I believe it was a cousin. I am almost sure it was his cousin. And I think it was the niece who was looking after his mother while he was here. And she had to go and keep house for the cousin after she was married and that left his mother all alone so that he had to go back to his mother, and I always thought he was such a good son to give up his place here at the castle in order to take care of his poor old mother, and I am sure very few would have done it in his place. But I must say that the next baker was very much better at gingerbread, though he never made up any songs, and I think the king himself missed the first one a good deal afterward, though he never would say so. Go on, cried Bojan, and Solario proceeded. I rose to my feet, said Alp, and made off across the fields. I found a path which wound down to the village, and I was presently standing in the street. All the stalks were gone, probably within doors for the night. I set forth briskly to find the house of the one-armed sorcerer. I realized that the stalk with the necklace was the princess herself, and I knew that if she was to be saved from the rat picker, I must act quickly. I remembered the gilded wooden arm and hand, holding a lantern, 
which stood out from the one-armed man's house and it was only a matter of time to find it i found it sooner than i expected a light was burning dimly in the lantern but the house was dark there was no stalk upon the housetop i tried the handle of the door quietly and to my surprise the door gave before me and i pushed it open he peeped into the sorcerer's workshop i found myself in a dark room which i crossed quickly to a door at the other side this door i opened on a crack and through the crack i looked into a lighted room a small room evidently a workshop cluttered about with glass vessels of strange shapes metal machines of various sorts wooden hoops curiously interlaced charts of the skies and great brass-bound books and at one side of the room was a forge and in the centre a table before this table was standing the one-armed man whom i had already seen on the table the stork with the necklace was lying on its side perfectly still and as i looked the old man plucked a feather from the stork's wing and examined it carefully he then cast it aside and plucked another this time from the back this also he tossed away after examining it and then he plucked a feather from the shoulder and holding it up to the light gave a cry of pleasure and without turning said come in alp i have been expecting you i stepped into the room and the old man greeted me with a friendly smile and held up the feather do you see this said he i looked at it closely at the point of the quill hung a single drop of blood the stalk on the table stirred uneasily the sorcerer stroked it gently and said sleep and the stork lay perfectly still again wait a minute said the old man we must keep this drop from falling off and we must harden the point of the quill he produced from a closet a metal box and out of this he took a small glass tube covered with frost he held the drop of blood for a moment inside the tube and then put the tube away in its box now said he the drop will not fall off he went to the forge and blowing up the coals with a pair of bellows he held the point of the quill for a moment in the fire now said he it is as hard as a pin the one-armed sorcerer plucked a feather from the stalk sir said i will you tell me what this is for to save the rat picker from herself said the sorcerer but it's the princess i have come to save said i it is the same thing said the old man if the rat picker is saved from herself everybody else is saved too and this drop of blood from the princess's heart will do it and nothing else i have seen the rat picker to-night sir said i and i will tell you about it sit down my son said the old man and when we were seated i told him all that i had seen and heard in the rat picker's cavern the sorcerer shook his head and smiled and so she thinks i wish to take away her shadows and let the people kill her well well it's the way of wickedness to see nothing but evil why should i wish her harm 
What I seek to do is to save her, not to destroy her. But she'll never believe that, because she can't think straight. Anyway, in trying to do evil, she had provided me with the means of making her good. How has she done that? said I. If she hadn't stolen the princess's shadow, I shouldn't have brought the princess here. And if I hadn't brought the princess here, she wouldn't now be a stork. And if she hadn't been turned to a stalk, I couldn't have gotten the drop of blood from her heart. Is it true, said I, that the rag picker protects herself with shadows? Of course, what could protect her better? What else is there to fear but shadows? I confess I'm more than half afraid of them myself. We all know we shouldn't be, but we are, just the same. They're perfectly harmless. But they're terrible. There's nothing so real as shadows. But tell me, said I, how we are to save the princess. All in good time, said the sorcerer. In the meantime, you must get a little rest, for you have an important task to do in the morning. I was tired out. In fact, the sorcerer left me, and I sat beside the sleeping stork. Watching it in silence for a long while, and then I surrendered myself to drowsiness and fell asleep. When I awoke, it was morning. The stork was gone, and the sorcerer's hand was on my shoulder. Come," said he, and placed in my hand a tiny bowl of thin metal, with a string of fine hair, and showed me how to use the stork's feather as an arrow to the bowl. He then instructed me in what I had to do, and led me out into the street. The stork, which has been a princess, was standing on the curb before the door, and all the other storks were in their places on the housetops. The street was already busy; shops and houses were being opened for the day, and many people were outdoors. He lies in wait with a bow and arrow. Carrying the stork's feather and the bow, I went to the next corner, round which, on the evening before, I had seen the rapier turn up toward her home. I passed this corner and concealed myself in a doorway just beyond. I had not long to wait. I had drawn my head back into the doorway for a moment, and when I looked again, the rapier was standing at the street crossing. With her back toward me, gazing in the direction of the stork, which stood before the sorcerer's door, on her back was her bag, and in her left hand she carried a knife. The people in the street stopped to watch her, muttering together. "Skak," said she, "come in," and she turned sidewise to her shadow, which lay at a great length on the ground before her. It began to shorten toward her. And kept shortening until it was no longer than herself. Stand up," said she, and the shadow stood upright beside her, a black, flat image of herself in outline, looking as if it had been cut off from stiff black paper. The rapier let down the bag from her shoulder and opened it on the ground and said, "Come out." At this, all the people gave a cry of terror. And fled into their houses and shut the doors, and all the storks on the housetop fluttered their feathers and flapped their wings. 
The rag picker releases the shadows in the street. Out of the bag poured shadows, hundreds of them, all the shadows of little children which I had seen go into the bag the night before, and as they poured out, they ran about in the street as if bewildered. Skag, said the rag picker, to the fore. The old woman's shadow hastened to the front of all the otters and raised its long poker finger, beckoning them to follow. They crowded behind and moved noiselessly up the street toward the stalk at the sorcerer's door. The rag picker followed close behind, holding her knife up in her left hand. The stalk which was the princess stood motionless on the curb before the door. The sorcerer was not to be seen. Now was my time for action. I crept silently after the old woman and came up just behind her. I fitted the feather with its drop of blood to the little bowl. And as I approached the old woman so close that I might have touched her, I aimed quickly at her back and let the arrow fly. Straight into her back it darted and stuck there fast. Skag! she screamed, but she said no more. Quick as a wink, I plucked the feather from her back, and as I did so, she turned upon me with her knife uplifted. But she stood suddenly still. Her hand relaxed, and the knife fell to the ground. A change came slowly over her. Her back straightened. She grew taller. The wrinkles left her face. Her skin became fairer, her eyes larger, her hair longer. And there was standing before me in her place a beautiful young damsel, tall and erect, with dark eyes in a pale face and two thick braids of brown hair hanging to her waist. She held up her right hand and looked at it and gave a cry of joy. The long black hooked finger was gone. Her two hands were the shapely white hands of a young woman without blemish. Free, she cried. The enchantment is over. I am myself at last. Oh, thanks, young man. And she threw her arms around me and kissed me soundly on the cheek. I released myself, awkwardly enough, and as I did so, I saw all the shadows up the street fall flat to the ground, as if they had been knocked over by a ball, and they began to slip swiftly away in every direction across the pavement. In an instant, Skag, the old rag picker's shadow, lay at the young woman's feet. She screamed and shrank away, but in another instant the shadow's shape was changed, and in its place on the ground was the shadow of the young woman herself. She clapped her hands with joy. A singular commotion on the housetops. The shadow of the children were climbing the walls of the houses, and all of a sudden, I heard a great clamor from the housetops, as of hundreds of children crying out together. We can't get down. Oh, I'm falling. Help! I can't hold on. Oh, mother, we can't get down. I'm slipping. I'm going to fall. Hurry, hurry, mother, come quick. I looked up, and there, on the housetops where the storks had been, Children were clinging to the chimney pots, straddling the ridge poles, hanging on to the gables. Big children and little children, boys and girls, 
shrieking out at the top of their voices and struggling to keep from toppling off into the street. One tiny boy suddenly disappeared down a chimney. A big girl lost her hold and rolled down the roof into a wide laden gutter, where she hung half on and half off. Dozens of boys and girls sat astride the ridge poles, as if riding cock horses. The big boys began to shout with glee, but the little ones were crying with fright. And at the hubbub, all the doors flew open, and all the fathers and mothers ran out. And when they saw what it was, a mighty shout went up. And it wasn't a minute before a ladder stood against every wall, and not more than two minutes before all the children were safe on the ground, hugged up in their mother's and father's arm, with such laughing and weeping and cheering as never were, I am sure, in this world before. Oh, isn't it wonderful! cried the beautiful young woman. I'm so glad, so glad. The princess! I cried. Look at the princess. The princess is herself again, but she was her own lovely self again, and she was standing at the same place on the curb before the sorcerer's house, and the sorcerer himself was standing beside her. The young woman and myself ran swiftly to her, and I shouted a joyous greeting as I approached. But to my surprise, she did not reply. She was standing perfectly motionless, with her eyes wide open, and one hand raised to her neck as if about to unfasten her necklace. On her shoulder, shown by the open neck of her dress, was a tiny spot of blood. The young woman kissed the sorcerer's hand and thanked him. "But the princess!" I cried. "What is the matter with the princess?" The sorcerer shook his head sadly. Somebody always has to pay for these benefits," said he. "And I am afraid that when we plucked the feather, we took away something we cannot replace. She cannot move nor speak, but I will set to work, and in time I will." "Come," said the young woman. "I will help her. We must take her home. Come at once." The sorcerer and myself lifted the princess between us and carried her down the street toward the cove. The village people and their children followed us, and stood in a throng on the beach as we got into a boat and hoisted a sail. "Goodbye!" shouted the people, and the sorcerer and myself waved our hands none too cheerfully. And at that moment, we heard a kind of bark from the water beside the boat, and a voice cried. Sister, it was the seal. The young woman leaned down toward him and cried, "Brother, is everything all right now?" said the seal. "What are you going to do about me?" The sister raised the princess and showed him the red mark on the princess's shoulder, and told him about the plucking of the stork's feather. Then the seal's sister said, "For once, you have done a good deed, brother, and if you do another." You know the promise, two good deeds. You'll be free too. Go and do not return until you have brought that which will cure the princess. The milk of the white walrus who lives in the far alone grotto on the twelfth ice floe. Do you understand? It's a pretty good trip," 
said the seal and i'll probably have to fight the walruses but if you say so why i suppose when do you think i'd better start this instant cried his sister off with you and return to us at the king's castle at ventermere oh very well said the seal and died he came up again at the mouth of the cove making off at a great rate for the open sea we reached the king's castle at ventermere in the evening and pressed straightway into the grand refectory where the king was at supper with his court as we entered the whole company sprang up and my father ran toward me the king beholds his child and is grieved the sorcerer and myself carrying the princess stood her on her feet and supported her thus between us and the seal's sister stood beside us my daughter cried the king and rushing toward the princess with outstretched arm stopped in amazement as she remained between us as speechless and motionless as a statue i whispered rapidly into my father's ear and the sorcerer kneeling before the king began to explain the king paid no attention to him but placed a hand upon his daughter's arm and wept my poor child he said what shall we do now there was a movement at the door a crowd of the castle people poured into the room and parting opened a lane for a young man a stranger who advanced rapidly from the door a very fat young man with a round pink face and round blue eyes who wore hanging from his shoulders the skin and head of a seal brother cried the seal's sister yes said the fat young man it's me and a pretty little time i've had among the walruses i can tell you and he bowed low at the same time to the king have you some business with us young sir said the king venison steak and hasty pudding said the fat young man with his eye on the supper table oh i beg your pardon i am the milkman milk we want no milk here said the king it's for the princess said the fat young man to be taken externally good for the lumbago rheumatism sprains shiblands strawberry rash what is this fellow talking about said the king in exasperation brother said the young woman his sister fixing him sternly with her eye rub a little on her shoulder said the brother direct from the white walrus on the twelfth ice floe and the walruses nearly ate me alive before i got it but here it is excellent for all sorts of skin and blood diseases as well as brother said the young woman sternly i beg your pardon said the fat young man and with a very grand manner he took out of his pocket an oyster shell and pried it open with a knife from the table on the lower half of the shell was a spoonful of white liquid the seal introduces his liniment guaranteed to cure in all cases very convenient milk bottle said he and waving the king aside he stepped up to the princess and went on pompously as if he were making a speech i will now said he in the presence of the entire company and openly before you all 
so that you may see that no deception is practiced upon you. Apply a modicum of my liniment to the shoulder of the young lady. At the point where I perceive a stain of red, rubbing the same in gently, with a downward motion of the first two fingers of the right hand, thus and thus and thus. He poured the white liquid from the shell onto the red spot on the princess's shoulder and rubbed it in gently, talking all the while. Now, ladies and gentlemen, he went on, I call your attention to the effects of this lotion when properly applied. It is warranted to be very efficacious in all cases of... But see, she rovers her hand, she moves her foot, she speaks, she... Father, cried the princess, and threw herself into her father's arm. Hooray, I shouted, and all the company cheered, until the rafters rang again. Let the castle people retire, said the king, and he led the princess to the table, where he seated her at his right hand, wiping his eyes and blowing his nose. When we were all at the table, the sorcerer told his tale, and not until he had heard it to the end would the king permit the meal to proceed. I observed that the son of the assistant carol singer was very attentive to the seal's sister, and as for the fat young man, her brother, during the repast, which lasted a full two hours, he spoke not a word. At the end, the king begged him to relate the story of his enchantment and his sister's, and he readily consented, whereupon he commenced, without being asked a second time. The story of the talking seal and his sister. You must know, he began. I am very sorry, said the princess Dorabel, interrupting, but it is Bojon's bedtime, and I fear we shall have to hear this story another time. Oh, mother, said Bojon, I couldn't go to sleep if I tried. Please don't. No, my dear, said the princess Dorabel, not tonight. Pray go on without story, Sir Ariel. When the seal's story was finished, said Alf, the king begged the one-armed sorcerer to remain with him as his friend and adviser. And this the sorcerer consented to do. And now, said the king, turning to me, what reward shall be yours? I will deny you nothing. I knelt before him and made my request boldly. I knew that my whole future hung upon that moment. The hand of my lady princess, said I, if she is willing. What do you say, my dear? said the king. The princess said nothing, but turned red as a rose, and buried her head on her father's shoulder. She was mine. I took her hand in mine and kissed it. That's settled, said the king. And you, sir, said he to fat young man, what gifts shall I bestow upon you? A little more of the custard pie, if you please, said the fat young man. End of section 7 The Rat Picker and the Princess, part 2 Recorded by Kualada.